If you remember, throughout the month of January, one of the things that we've been focused on is to help you as individuals take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. We want to help you follow Jesus in a meaningful way. So we've been walking through the month of January looking at really what our five characteristics of a disciple are. Okay, we believe that the best environment for growing as a disciple is in the, is in the context of a life group. Okay, so we say that life change happens best in meaningful relationships. We want to help you get into a group. We've talked about that on week two of this. Jesse preached about community. Um, and the reason we believe that is because we believe it's uh, within the regular rhythms of your life that you grow as a disciple of Christ. Um, the way I think about this a lot of times is that um, there were areas of my life that were just blind spots prior to marriage. I got into my relationship with my wife, we got married, we start to live together, and then she starts to help expose areas about me that I never knew existed. Some of you know how frustrating that experience is, right? Um, this is why a lot of marriages fall apart, because they can't handle that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that God used that relationship to sanctify me. Through the regular rhythms of life, I had a voice that was speaking into my life, helping me look more like Jesus, and the same is reciprocated. And that's what happens when you do life with other believers in the faith as well. You get into a life group. You start living life with those people. Now, you don't move into their home. That would just be weird. Um, but you know what I mean. You spend enough time around those people that they see your highs, they see your lows, and they help you grow as a disciple of Christ by speaking Scripture into the highs and even into the lows. So week one, we tackle what it looks like to have life in Christ. We talked about the importance of Bible study and prayer. We even have um, a, a Bible reading plan available to you that hopefully many of you have picked up and are enjoying walking through that with us. Um, but we also talked about prayer, how we need to be people who don't just pray uh, during the course of a meal, but actually pray fervently for specific things in our life, also just spending that time enjoying being in the presence of God. And then we talked about life and community. Last week, we talked about life of generosity, what it looks like to be men and women who live and give generously. Um, I will say to you that we have a very generous church, um, so I want to say thank you for that. Um, but also, we want to talk about what it looks like to give our lives away uh, to help other people. And today we're going to kind of take that same concept of living generously to another level. Today we're going to be talking about the fourth characteristic of a disciple, and that is a life of service. A life of service. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we're going to be there this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. So again, as you're turning there, just remember, the whole purpose of the month of January is to help you take your next step as a follower of Jesus. We want you to look more like Christ at the end of the month than you did as the month began. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. But before we read those this morning, I want you to know that Philippians chapter 2 is kind of like a two-layered cake. Okay, so some of you, that's going to make your stomach growl this morning. But Philippians 2 is like a two-layered cake layered cake. On one layer, you have Paul speaking theologically, okay? And then on another layer, you have Paul speaking very practically. What does that actually mean, Trey? Theologically, you're going to see that this passage that we're going to read together gives us remarkable insight into the nature of Christ. We're going to see that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man. But that's the theological layer of the cake. There's also a practical layer, 
See, the practicality of this text is actually the context in which it's written. Paul is writing to these men and women in Philippi to instruct them practically on how to live their lives. So when you come to a text like this, no matter if it seems deeply theological, it is, but this text is also going to be deeply practical as well. So when we come to Philippians, or not Philippians, yeah, Philippians chapter 2, um, when we come to Philippians chapter 2, this text is not primarily a text about the theology surrounding Jesus, it's also helping you and I know how to live our lives as a result of that theology. You might be wondering, well, Trey, why does that even matter? Like, why would you spend time explaining this two-layered cake to us? Listen, if you are a child of God, if you are a man or a woman who has surrendered your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are now a Christian, okay? Now, that's not just a name tag only. That's because your life has been bought by the blood of Jesus. You are now a Christian. That word Christian means little Christ. It means that you are a Christ follower, that Jesus is now your supreme example, teaching you and instructing you on how to live. Your life should be on a journey attempting and striving to emulate the life of Christ. We want to see how he lived, how he reacted, how he acted, and all things that he did. So that's why it matters, because Paul is specifically touching on the practicality of this today, and I believe that's what we're going to be doing as well. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul, out of the gate here in the first two verses, is preaching a sermon on unity. He's preaching to us about what it means to be a unified body. The most important thing that you can do as a man or a woman in faith, a woman or man who refers to themselves as a Christian, is to be unified with other brothers and sisters in the faith. In fact, I would say this as a congregation as well. The most important thing that can happen in the life of our church is that we are men and women who are unified up under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds this in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, a better word for that is have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What attitude is Paul encouraging us to have? The attitude that Paul says that we as little Christ are supposed to have is that we consider others more significant than ourselves. Let's be honest. That is very difficult for almost every single one of us to do, isn't it? I mean, we are all caught up in all of our emotions. We get caught up in what we want. We, want, we get caught up in when we want it. But Paul's saying, here, have this attitude among yourselves, that you consider others more significant than even yourself. And then he says this in verse 6, Who though he, talking about Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you this morning and thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you, God, for instructing us and teaching us and helping us learn what it looks like to live a life that emulates you. And Father, I pray that as we walk through this life of service today, that you would challenge us all to see if we are men and women who are on a journey to look more like you each and every day, even in the way that we serve. Father, would you have your will? Would you have your way? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, if you boiled the word serve down to one basic theological principle, it would be this. It's simply to obey and enjoy God. That's it. Service is all about obeying and enjoying God. Service goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to the day that Adam and Eve were created. They were created to obey God and to enjoy God forever. But it was sin that disrupted that. And we're going to see how sin has completely disrupted service in this passage even for us today. My journey or my hope is that we as a church would would become a church that's full of service, that we are people, that we're men, that we're women, that we're a congregation that values service. But in order for us to be a church that values service, it's going to mean that we have to be individuals that value service. So we have to have a church that's full of servants. I believe in this text there are four things that will help you become a servant like Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. Four things that will help you become a servant like Jesus. The first one is this. A servant is sacrificial. A servant is sacrificial. It says this in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in the original language, this says, who, though he was in the very same nature as God. So what Paul or Peter or Paul is showing us here is that there's a dual nature. He's human, he has a human nature, but he's God and he has a divine nature. This is a fancy theological term that's called hypostatic union. It's the combination of a divine and human natures in one single person. And that's what we see here in the person of Jesus Christ. So what's Paul's point by showing us this? It's that Jesus is God, but Jesus is in human flesh. He's not just a prophet, Paul was saying. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a healer. That God is actually incarnate. He's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So notice how Paul says it this way. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus surrendered his rights. When he became human... He gave up some of his privileges. He became fully man so that he could suffer with us and so that he could suffer for us. See, Jesus has access to all the privilege and power to which his divinity entitled him because he is indeed fully God. But rather than exploiting that privilege, rather than exploiting that power, what does Jesus do? He sacrifices his privilege. He sacrifices his power in order that he might serve men and women like me and you. He served us to the greatest degree. As a demonstration of his love for us, he provided for us in himself 
what you and I could not obtain apart from him. What's your point, Trey? Here it is. All that Jesus has in his divinity became a channel of giving rather than a conduit for getting. Do you see what's happening? A servant is sacrificial. A servant doesn't look for what he can get from something. A servant looks for what he can give to it. Now think about this. How many of you have heard someone say, well, I think I'm going to go to a different church because they have this to offer? You've heard it. I've done it before. I mean, some of you have done it too. Some of you came from another church because you felt like there was something that we offered you that was better than the place that you were previously. But what if church locally in the context of the gathering, what if it weren't about that? What if it weren't about what you could go and get? Instead, it was about what you could go and give because that's the life that Jesus emulated for us. It wasn't so that we could go to a place and consume from the buffet of things that they offer. It was so that we could go to a place and contribute with the gifts that we have. And for many of us, what happens in the Bible Belt in the South is the church merely becomes a place where we can go and get something from it without ever offering sacrificially the gifts that we have to it. And Paul's saying that's not what this thing is all about. All that Jesus has in his divinity became a channel of giving rather than a conduit for getting. Church is not about what you are getting out of it. It's about what you are giving to it. Let me say it this way. Christian service is fundamentally about sacrificial giving. It's not about getting. If we are going to be servants like Jesus, it will require sacrifice on our part. And just like Jesus sacrificed or surrendered his rights and privileges, it will mean that you and I have to surrender some of our rights and privileges as well. See, service is not a costume that we put on on Sunday morning. We, we, don't, we don't just wear it on Sunday morning so that we can show up and serve in the parking lot or serve in the kids' ministry. No, it's a lifestyle that we embody as we become more like Jesus. What does that mean, Trey? To live generously isn't just about serving in some certain magnitude on Sunday morning at a local church. To live generously means that I'm in a habit and an attitude of service all even throughout the week. We should serve in our homes. We should serve at our workplaces. We should be looking for opportunities to serve no matter where we are because in those environments and in those contexts, we're trying to emulate the life of Christ and we're trying to put the gospel on full display before a watching world. That's what Paul was getting at here. It's not a Sunday morning gig. I know many people who are great servants at church on Sunday, but they're terrible servants at home the rest of the week. And church, I don't want that to be what we're about. We want to be a church of men and women, boys and girls, who live a lifestyle of constant sacrifice no matter where we are throughout the week. Let me ask you a question this morning as way of application. Do you consider yourself to be this type of servant? Does your spouse consider you to be this type of servant? Can you honestly say with, with, with integrity that you enjoy serving other people? That you're okay with stripping away some of the things that are important to you so that you can consider others' interests even above your own? Let me ask it this way. This is the negative way of asking the same thing. Do you find yourself super annoyed at the fact that you have to serve someone else? 
And if you don't, maybe you can't pinpoint a time, just pay attention to your lifestyle this week. I promise you, you'll find a time where you get super annoyed at having to serve other people. And if you don't, just have some kids. You'll learn quickly what it's like to get annoyed at serving other people. But a servant is sacrificial. Not only is a servant sacrificial, but there's a second thing here. A servant becomes less so that others can become more. A servant becomes less so that others can become more. Look at verse 7. It says, but Jesus emptied himself. That means he poured himself out. It means he made himself nothing. How? By taking on the form of a servant. That means taking on the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men. See, church, make no mistake about it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. But we're told here that Christ became a servant, not a master. He became a slave. He became less so that others could become more. See, Jesus left the sweet sweet aroma of heaven for the stench of the stable. We know that. That's what happens at Christmas. He left the songs of heaven's chorus so that he could come and hear the cries of angry mobs. Jesus went from being exalted in a place like heaven to being executed on a place like earth. Why? He did this because he was, one, being obedient to the Father, And then two, because of his great, unfathomable love for myself and for you. So at the heart of what it means to follow Christ is to lose our life in order that we might save it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We die to ourselves so that we might live with him. That we empty who we are so that we can become full of who he is. But let's be honest, the sinner in us is not interested in us being emptied. The sinner in us is is interested in us being full of things we like and in things we enjoy. Let me take a minute to address a common mistake that I think happens in the life of the church. Some of us, we have served faithfully for many, many years. And for many, many years, over the course of 5 to 10, maybe 15, 20 plus years, you have said, you know, I've given myself, I've given myself, I've sacrificed my time, I've served Now it's time for me to step back just so that I can be filled. My tank's kind of gone empty. It's now a chance for me to just be filled. Can I be honest with you? You do know that a part of your service, it's your own responsibility to fill yourself up. You understand that, right? It's, It's very difficult to serve when you are running on empty. But you also can't look to others to do for you what only God can do. Like, I can't feel you. So just sitting here, doing nothing, quit not, not serving anymore because you've done that for 15 years, so that you can be filled is really an erroneous way at looking at what God has called us to do. Let me give you a better example of this. Many of you might remember Mr. Ed Tucker. Um, we had a memorial service for him on Friday here um, at our church. And uh, his family, some of them flew in from Texas, others drove down, they were all here. And many of you participated in that memorial service. But one of the things that struck me, like, because I didn't know Mr. Ed as well as some of you did, but one of the things I loved hearing about him as Chuck, as Pastor Tim, and others talked about his life, is how even at the verge or the age of retirement, he didn't stop 
he found so much joy in what he did that he wanted to push all the way to the finish line. So even after he could have retired, he continued to stay in the game. He continued to love kids and to love the Lord enough that he wanted to invest his life into other people. And I thought, man, what, what would our church look like if every man and every woman carried the attitude of a Mr. Tucker? Saying, I'm going to not only be faithful to my church family and serve there, but I'm also going to be uh, faithful to my place of occupation and serve there. And even if I can see the finish line in front of me, even if my days are really numbered, I'm not going to quit and I'm not going to stand idly by waiting for someone to do for me what only God can do. No, I'm going to push through the finish line and I'm going to keep on keeping on until the Lord takes me home. And if you did that, and if I did that, then the people that were saying the same things about Mr. Ed Tucker would be saying those things about us when our life was said and done here. There's no doubt he's standing before God hearing, well done, thy good and faithful servant, because he's the epitome of what it means to run your race well and to not finish until you've crossed the finish line. See, he became less so that others could become more. A servant sacrificially seeks the highest joy of other people. In fact, they find their greatest joy in bringing joy to others. Remember what I said the servant was theologically even before uh, sin came in Genesis chapter 3? It was simply to obey God and to enjoy him. That's all service is. You obey God and you enjoy him. And what you find in the process of your obedience to God and your enjoyment of him is that you have joy that you're now offering other people. Many of you will need to know that we're going to have a volunteer orientation coming up, and this will be a great way, a great opportunity for you to learn more about how different ways, really, that you could serve in the life of the church. There's simple ways that you could serve. There's big ways that you could serve. And many of you, you can take that next step and look more like Jesus by being a part of the volunteer orientation. But a servant becomes less... So others can become more. There's a third thing. The third is a servant is obedient no matter the cost. A servant is obedient no matter the cost. Look at verse 8. It says in verse 8, And being found in human form, I love this phrase right here, He humbled himself. We're talking about Jesus, who took it upon himself to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Bible's telling us that Jesus humbled himself. And quite frankly, if you think about that reality, it's really kind of hard to comprehend the magnitude of what that's saying. That Jesus, the one who was highly exalted above every other name, found it within himself the ability to humble himself. The creator of heaven and earth, the one who formed and fashioned man with his own hands, the one who rules and powers with all authority, the Bible says he humbled himself and allowed himself to be executed by the very men that he created. That's what he did. You understand that the cross is the lowest form of execution. The cross was reserved for the insignificant of their society. It was the cruelest form of punishment that could have been placed on any man or woman. They would humiliate the victims that came to the cross. They would absolutely torture them. It was 
It was normally, when you would go and die on a cross, it was normally a very slow, methodical death. While the victim slowly lost his blood, they would stand nearby and they would actually cheer him on. Cheer him on by offering slandering words and mockery and spitting on the victim and taking jabs at him. This is what they would do. They would whip him and, and pour alcohol on their wounds. And yet the Bible is telling us that this is the extent that Jesus was willing to go to obey the Father. He was obedient, the Bible says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. There were no limits, in other words, to Jesus' service. There were no borders and no boundaries to the extent by which he would go. He wanted to be fully obedient, and he was fully obedient. So the, the, the moral of the story is if we want to be servants like Jesus, we can't box God in. We, we can't box him in. We can't convince ourselves that God is only going to ask us to do the things that we actually want to participate in. Sometimes God is going to move you and me beyond the borders of our comfort so that we can look more like him. Sometimes the greatest lessons that we'll learn in our lives is when we step when we step outside the boundaries of what makes us good or comfortable or even the things we want to do. So our obedience to him can't be selective. We have to fully obey no matter what it is that he asks. See, being an obedient servant is more about being than it is about doing. If you approach service or even servanthood as something you have to do, then you're going to burn out. You will wear yourself slapped out. But if you approach service or servanthood as a state of me becoming more like Christ, then I'll realize that this is a journey. And each and every day, through the people that he puts in my life in those places of service, I will inevitably look more and more like him each day. So my question to you this morning is, again, really simple. Where is God asking you to obey? What area in your life are you not obeying the Lord Jesus in? Where is he asking you to do something that you might not want to do, but you know that if I don't, then I'm disobeying him? There's a fourth thing this morning as well. Fourth and finally, a servant who seeks the glory of his master will be rewarded. A servant who seeks the glory of his master will be rewarded. Look at verse 9. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Nothing brings glory to God, quite like a humble servant. If you're here this morning, raise your hand. Some of you. Not all of you, but some of you are here. If you want your life to bring glory to God, it requires that you become a humble servant. In order to be humble, you have to be teachable. In order to be teachable, you have to want to learn. 
And the Lord gets glory when you and I place our lives literally as subjects at his feet. And we open our hearts, we open our minds, we open our hands, and we say, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. Whatever you ask, my answer is yes, so use me. Are you there this morning? Or are there certain aspects of your life, maybe certain compartments of your life that you would rather the Lord not touch? Are there certain people in your life that you would rather the Lord not touch? Are there certain resources in your life you would rather the Lord not touch? The motive of Jesus' heart was indeed the glory of God. My question to us, is that the motive of our heart? Are we so motivated by the glory of God that we're willing to empty completely ourselves so that we might have more of him? He obeyed, Jesus did, because that's what brought God glory. He humbled himself because that's what brought God glory. His master wasn't his ministry. His approval, his reputation, his acceptance, his position, his financial security, none of that was his ministry. His master was God in anything that his father asked him to do. He was willing to say yes and do it. And what did God do with Jesus' humble service? What did he do? How did God respond to Jesus' humility? He exalted him. Isn't that what it says? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. He did this after he saw the obedience of his son. He did this after his son humiliated himself, even the death, the death on the cross. He exalted him. That means to be set apart. When you think about this word, set apart, you start to think of offices in the church, or you should. Why? Because in the church, as you study Timothy and Titus, what you're going to notice is that there are certain men who are set apart in the congregation to do the Lord's work and to govern and to lead the church, such as pastors and elders, okay? That's where they come from. But then there's another office that exists under their banner. And what is that? It's the office of, anybody know? Deacon, right. What's the term deacon mean? It means serve, right? That's all, that's all it means, is it means to serve. You're setting apart for a place of very particular service. What I want to tell you this morning is over the past few months, we at Eagles Landing have been praying fervently about what deacon ministry looks like here in the life of our church. And one of those things that we're going to do over the next few months is we're going to begin not only reminding you who our deacons are, but also what their place of service actually looks like. Because some of you, I don't think, know who they are. And then if you do know who they are, you might not know what their place of service looks like. Let me tell you how I know. Because those deacons don't know what their place of service looks like. <laughs> so you don't know either. I mean, it's just, it's just plain and simple, right? But what we want to do is we want to clarify that for you. But it's also going to mean that we're going to have to identify more men to step and fill some gaps that we might have. See, deacons are an office in the church. You would have elders, you'd have pastors, and then you have deacons. I'm not sure what deacons look like where you're from. But here at Eagles Landing, we're going to follow the biblical model for what deacons look like, okay? Biblically speaking, deacons are servants. They are servants in the church who are not deacons, but there should be no deacon in the church who's not a servant. We understand what that means, right? Fundamentally, what I want you to know is that deacons help with the practical work of ministry as delegated by the elders of the church. That's what they do. 
They help with the practical needs of the ministry. Why? So that the elders, the pastors, can focus on the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. These men come alongside them, and they help do the practical things so that those pastors can remain focused on the word and prayer. I want to go over real quickly what our process at Eagles Landing looks like so that you can familiarize yourself with this, but we're not going to actually carry this out until a few months, okay? What's the process for a deacon look like? Pastor elders determine the number of deacons that need to be nominated, okay? That's where it begins. We realize, man, this need is not being met. We need people to meet this need. Acts chapter 6 is where you go for that reference, right? The widows were being neglected in their daily distribution of the food. So what did the elders of the church do? Well, they brought deacons along and said, we're going to meet this need. So we have to identify the need, the number of deacons, and then we actually nominate them. The second step to this is congregation, you, are given two weeks to nominate deacons. Hey, man, I've watched this person. I've watched this individual. This person serves in great capacity. This is someone, I believe they meet all the character uh, qualifications of the deacon. This is someone I would like to nominate. You get that chance to do that. Three candidates are interviewed by those pastors. Four, the pastors or the elders will make a recommendation to the church seeking the church's affirmation. I want to be really clear there. We're not seeking the church's approval. We're seeking the church's affirmation. What does that mean? It means if there's a candidate that's brought forth that you know something about that doesn't qualify them, you need to speak up. (laughs) You need to speak up because you're protecting the church there. So we're looking for the church's affirmation. We affirm that these men have the character of what it means to be a deacon, but also they do live the lives that emulate a great servant. And then fifth, candidates are assigned a role within their passions by pastors and elders. So they're given a role within their passions assigned as needed, and then if needed, we will ordain those men who the church affirms as deacons. So that's our six steps there for what deacon ministry will look like. But listen, this is how I want to conclude our time together. Not every person in this room is called to be a deacon, the office, but every person in this room is called to deacon, to serve. The question on the table this morning as we take a step towards becoming more and more like Christ is where, what lane are you currently serving in? Is your life emulating the life of Christ by being sacrificial in your service? Are you becoming less in your individual life so that other people can become more? Are you being obedient In every aspect of your life, I didn't ask you if you're doing the things you want to do. Are you being obedient in even the areas of doing things you don't want to do if the Lord's calling you to do it? And then fourth and finally, are you seeking the glory of your master? Is that what motivates you each and every day to look more and more like him? There's great news for you. For those of us who do this, just like Jesus was exalted you will be rewarded too. And your reward might not come here on this earth, but it will be awaiting in heaven. I like to say that it will actually be tasted and seen here on this earth as well. Here's why. Because I believe that when you step into your place of service, you're stepping into the way that God designed you to be. God designed you to obey and enjoy himself. And you obey him when you obey him when you enjoy him. I believe that's when your joy increases even in your life. So if you want to tap in to the greatest days of your life where joy just exudes in you 
and out of you. It doesn't mean your circumstances in life are going to change. But what it does mean is there's a closer connectivity to the person of God than you've ever experienced before. And that's something that no man, no woman, no circumstance, no situation will ever be able to strip away from you.